hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. It's David here, one of your hosts. So are you single? Is the cost of dating going up scaring you? Is it a burden on your budget or does it keep you from dating altogether? Well, today we have two guests on our show. One is a money expert and the other is an author of a book about dating in the new tech era. We're going to talk about the cost of dating and a few other things. So stick around and I'll share with you at the end three ways to keep the cost of dating down. Remember also to go over to DebtFreeGuys.com, check out all of the new free shit we've added, including ebooks, worksheets, and other things that can help you live debt-free, have fun, and be money conscious. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. Okay, let's see if this card goes through for that $8,000 drink. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants to be a part of the in-crowd. Everybody wants to to look good. My my decision was, I'm not a victim. I'm not going to stay and work someplace where this is a problem. Normally, we don't drink on queer money, but because we're talking about a subject that David is rather vanilla on... Grab a glass of wine, because you're listening to Queer Money with the Debt-Free Guys. This is the only show helping our community do more and be more by talking about money from the queer perspective. And uh, we will go ahead and meet our guests. Uh, Dave, do you want to uh, please give us an introduction of yourself? Okay. Uh, I'm Dave Johnson. I'm a divorce lawyer here in town, and I work with a, the law firm uh, Johnson Marquez. Um, I am their managing partner and I've been practicing for about 22 years. Um, I started off uh, in the um, gay and lesbian community, uh, basically handling all types of cases. Um, and I've written a book about uh, relationships and uh, primarily gay relationships. And so I'm here to talk about the financial implications of those. And what is the name of that book? The name of the book is Looking, uh, Technology's Impact on Modern Relationships. Yes, and it's available on Amazon and anywhere else? Yeah, it's on iTunes, Amazon, yeah. it's everywhere. Awesome. I'll awesome. put that in our show notes. Uh, people can get out there and take a look at it. Absolutely. And Justin, would you please give sure. I am. I am Justin Simon. I'm the Senior Social Strategist and Consultant at MoneyTips.com. Uh, I am also on a five-year running of attending Pride Parades down in either Long Beach or Hollywood. Uh, And I'm the only straight man who was invited to Lesbian Attacks Annual Festival (laughs) in West Hollywood. So I get uh, a little nod in my cap. Uh, It is when uh, a few hundred lesbians uh, suddenly diverge on what is a standard uh, non, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, non-sexuality inclined bar and take it over uh, for the better part of uh, a full night and and just turn the entire thing upside down. And it was was a pleasure and an honor to be the only straight guy in attendance. (laughs) That sounds a lot like Grilla Queer Bar that we started here in Denver uh, several years ago. All right, um, to go ahead and get things started, um, I wanted to kind of shake things up a little bit. I know I sent out questions and talking points to everybody to get started, but um, has anybody on this call made um, a stupid purchase in hindsight or spend an overabundance of money trying to win somebody else's attention or heart that they want to share that story? (laughs) I have a story, but I don't want to bogart the whole conversation. (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, I, I think I've done that several times, and you guys are fully aware of me doing that several times. <laughs> Thanks to Facebook. <laughs> well, yeah. I know um, I had a boyfriend once, and um, but I once went, uh, I've only had two. <laughs> um, I had a boyfriend once, and uh, I, at the time when I moved out here, I had a Jeep, which I thought was very practical. But then when I uh, met him and we were going out, I was like, "Well, I have to buy him buy a new car so I can meet his standards." Um, unfortunately, I couldn't afford a new car, and so I bought a brand new car off the lot, and I put a down payment on my credit card. So that was probably <laughs> the dumbest, one of the dumbest things I ever did. <laughs> I think for me, and I'm probably not alone, and especially when I talk to millennials about you know long distance relationships. For me, it's been plane tickets. Uh, you know, early in my career and early in my dating, I, I lived just about uh, in seven or eight different states, and so it was a, a hop around the country. Uh, you know, to date is, you know, you're not in a place long enough to develop a relationship. So you go back to your previous one or, or maybe you were wooing somebody 
uh, that you know you're no longer living near. And so for a while, United Airlines and I were the best of friends. Uh, but unfortunately, that meant my United Credit Card and I were uh, the worst of enemies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I actually never thought about that. I um, with every the world getting smaller with you know social media. You can meet anybody anywhere, and all of a sudden you're you're attracted to somebody. And you have to fly just to see them. Yeah. It, well, you'll see on you'll see on dating apps where the range of people you're looking for is now sometimes up to 500 miles. Wow. You know, and, and and so you know you're trying to find somebody to hook up with or somebody to start a relationship with. 500 miles isn't an afternoon drive. Yeah. You you are flying. Right. Or, or if you are doing the weekend drive, that's gas and accommodations and all mm-hmm. deals. So right. I think the travel certainly plays into the wooing phase. Uh, at this stage, yeah, I don't know too many people. That, I, I, don't, I don't know too many people that haven't uh, bought airline tickets, dated somebody more than 500 miles away. I just I dated somebody in Montreal. It was you know that was quite a. Ch- and then you know if you have an economic disparity, you end up buying those tickets. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, that uh, I think that the dating apps and technology have complicated the financial picture because it adds all of this expense and it allows these long distance relationships. Yeah. Do you think it adds any value to, or the, to finding a better partner possibly? Uh, Well, your, your market, your pool is bigger. That's for sure. And so I suppose you have, you have um, more better odds of, of better aligning with somebody. And that's true with dating apps is that the relationships that come out of dating apps are actually more stable and last longer than, than traditional relationships. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think so So much of that is you get to screen the person beforehand. I mean, how many bad blind dates or, hey, you know, my, my buddy or my pal or my girl knows somebody you should you should meet or, or oh, you're into, you know, surfing. Well, I know a guy who's into surfing. Meanwhile, there's no other compatible points anywhere along your whole, you know, interest level. So online dating and, and the apps have really said, okay, here are the 10 things you're interested in. Well, we found somebody who likes eight of them. Right. And they might be 400 miles away, but that might be a better choice of somebody to spend time yeah, with. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'm kind of out of dating pool for a while. So is that is now the social norm to date online, so to speak, yeah, before you actually, transition to face-to-face? 60% the relationships now are, are coming off of dating apps of one form or another. So they're the, they're, that's the majority path for uh, finding a, a partner now. Yeah, wow. I, I should have I'm more gray hair to prove wonder. how long that I've been away from the. <laughs> right, what are you talking about? I wonder if that number isn't low simply because there are still some people who think there's a stigma to online dating and don't want to admit that, that that's how they're doing it. But other than going to your local bar, um, which you know you don't even see, and I, I live in, in a place called Hermosa Beach, California, very active community, young community, a lot of bars and restaurants, and it's not like there are singles nights. So you, you know, if you're going out, you're hoping you meet somebody. Right? At least on the apps and on you know other options, you're you're getting somewhat of a, uh, a chance of saying, okay, well they're looking for somebody, I'm looking for somebody, and we have at least a certain number of minimal things in common. Right. Well, that's the name of the book, looking. But yeah, I mean, you're right. The, uh, you, you, you can kind of go through a uh, uh, an interview process, a sober interview process um, with a dating app, um, and it can be it can last over several days, um, where you can kind of winnow the the candidates before you actually go and jump on an airplane or buy them a plane ticket or something. Um, so yeah, I think that I don't know uh, the sixty percent number. I think that that was a two thousand twelve survey, uh, but what happened was it reached the tipping point where it used to be where people who used apps to date were in the closet, really. They didn't want to talk about it. They wouldn't share that information with anybody. But now you see them at the gym, you know, and they're, they're holding pictures up for each other, like, hey, look who I found. Uh, so it's, it's, now, it's now come out of the closet. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that's evolving just like everything else does, huh? Right, yeah. It's no longer the, um, you only have the one good Facebook picture or the one profile picture because you can really explore to a certain degree, depends on how much somebody opens up. You can explore a lot more of their life, uh, what's available or what they're willing to, to open up. And I guess if they're not willing to open much up, then it maybe is an indication that they're trying to hold something back or, and then maybe well, maybe you're not the right one. So <laughs> but most intentionally people holding you back from you. Most people on Facebook, only post like the positive stuff. So are you are you just getting? You're still getting one sided picture of that. That's true, right? So you can't trust everything on what you're reading online. Right. I've been told. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, unless you have those friends you, who just post all their drama, and then you get well, the other side. Yeah, I was going to say your Facebook timeline and my Facebook timeline are two very different timelines. Apparently, if you're getting nothing but positive. Well, so I'm actually quite interested that we have a gay man on on um, the panel because I have a question. Um, is um, so is is it still the the norm for the man to pay in a straight? Um, relationship when you're dating, or is it, has that evolved as well? Uh, well, I, I assume you're talking to me. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> well, just making sure. Uh, I think the, the kind of rule of thumb is it's still the man's responsibility to pay for the first date. And then after that, it's more of a, a toss up. Uh, uh, we, we did a survey, um, not money tips. I, I don't want to say this was a money tip survey. This was for another client that we were working with. It was more in the relationship and, and sex advice world. And, and it was a survey we asked about 100 people, which is a small number, but we were just trying to get a, a concept of, you know, how many dates do you go on before you consummate the relationship in essence? And the thing we were most surprised by was the number of women that said after the second date. And I, I only bring that up because they said by that point, we know if we like them or we don't. And it's a tipping point. If, 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 if the fun is good, then we're in. And if the fun is bad, we're out. And so generally the man will pay for the first date. And there's this kind of a belief if you enjoyed the first date a lot, a lot of times the man will pay for the second with the anticipation that maybe, you know, his date is going to get drinks afterwards if they continue to go out. Uh, and then, you know, from there on, I, I find it's a combination of economic situation. If one makes significantly more than the other, um, I, I was doing very well and was dating a, a first year teacher. And so the, the disparity was, was fairly large and I felt bad making her pay for uh, you know, anything given that you know she had to pay for pencils for her classroom. Right. Uh, the flip side being that after, you know, five, six dates, you, you also want to date somebody who is financially and fiscally responsible for themselves. And they've got to be able to pick up a meal here and there as well. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I do think that you're dealing and when we talk to millennials about money, there's a lot more going Dutch because there's a, a feel of well, I'm an independent woman. I make my own money. I make my own career. And, and I am not bound by the belief that it is chivalrous for a man to pay. It's almost sexist for a man to pay. Uh, and, and so there's an interesting dichotomy where the man wants to still hold on to that traditional male role in the first date or, or early in the dating process. And the woman is saying, no, you, you need to see me as an equal from minute one. Right. And that includes financially. Yeah, that's very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Again, we've been out of the dating world for a long time, and especially so as friends. Yeah. So, is there a correlation in the gay community, um, gay and lesbian, I should say, um, community, and who pays, and how is that decided? I mean, I just assume that I made David pay for everything we started, but there was ring up even though even though I had a part time job and was going to school, and he was working full time. Well, yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, I can I, I don't have any studies on it and uh, I can only, you know, talk from personal experience, but it's the person with money that pays um, yeah. usually the first date. Um, and it's uh, it's kind of unusual, I think, that that expense would be shared. Um, it's it's just a role that uh, that the person with the cash kind of adopts. Well, um, how do you know who has the most cash or who has the more ca most cash? I, I mean, I think that, that that's something that you covered before you get there. Like, what's your job and where do you live and what kind of car you drive? What, how did you get here? I mean, I think that, that there's um, tip-offs and, and cues as to the economic, uh, you know, situation of each party. They could be completely false, right? Right. But, right. Um, but the, uh, the, the perception that they throw off generally leads to who picks up the bill, I think. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to say, you know, I say that... Sorry to interrupt you guys. Just one, one more thing that's interesting is you'll see a lot of lack of commitment, even to first dates now, where people only say, well, why don't we eat for drinks? Uh, because if it's not going well, they want to get out. They don't want to stay for a full dinner. They don't want to stay for, you know, a whole night. And and being that it's, hey, I'll, you know, I'll buy a round or two of drinks. And if it's going well, then maybe we'll have dinner and see who splits the bill or who pays for the bill. Uh, but we, we live in such a reactionary, Snapchatty society yeah. Uh, that, that those who are dating don't even want to give it a full meal to see if they like somebody. Yeah, was it a Yelp study that you said that yeah. you found? Yeah, it's interesting you say that, yeah, Justin, because I, I found something on Yelp today that was saying that uh, Yelp members recommend, let me see if I can find this here, they recommend starting off that way, that uh, that you start off with uh, paying uh, a lower amount um, on the first few dates 
um, as a way of kind of testing the waters as to whether or not this person is worth the investment and then working your way up with uh, how much you're willing to pay on a date. So maybe the first date is for a cup of coffee and the second date is maybe for a drink. And then after that, maybe it's appetizers or something like that. And it's not until, you know, maybe the third or fourth date that somebody's willing to put down 50 or a hundred bucks on a meal or something like that. Yeah. And in a, I guess to a certain degree, it kind of makes sense in a lot of ways. We kind of do that in, in the rest of our lives. We kind of inch into things. We test the waters with various things and, Maybe that's the way, you know, more and more people are doing that. Um, it, it, I guess there's two ends of the spectrum. You know, sometimes you think that there's there's some individuals who want to go big at the beginning and, and, and really impress. And then there's others who want to be a little bit more cautious. I'm going to post that information about that. Yelp. Dave? Yeah, I, uh, two things. One, I don't think that the traditional paradigm of dating um, is surviving very well. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, that that that's gonna that's the primary way that people meet anymore, and I don't think that there is such a thing as a first date. I think that people are meeting each other um, at dance clubs or at parties or online, and um, they're not saying let's go to dinner. I mean, they're they're saying come on over. Um, right, and I mean, true. I think that that is that is the, the becoming the norm, and so traditional dating um, is not. I mean, it's it's just fading away. The the other thing um, is the the buying the dinner. I understand that that probably there is a group of people that would want to baby step into spending money on somebody, but there's also the converse, and where the person really wants to overwhelm the and impress the the, yeah. the date um, and spends too much um, on on the dinner or spends too much on on whatever the first thing might be. And uh, so I've definitely seen that and I've done it myself, you know, where you really want to impress somebody. So you take them someplace really nice to start off. I mean, you only get, what, what's the saying? You only get one chance, first impression. So, <laughs> yeah, it's true. 4.3 seconds online or something like right. that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the second picture. No, no, we're out. Yeah, we're going to edit our pictures. <laughs> no, but they, that's a really interesting point is, is that, you know, if you're going into a relationship already saying, you know, I'm going to spend big, I'm going to splurge on that person, does the second date then become a letdown, right? Is it almost like you're showing your true colors, you know, oh, okay, so you dropped 400 bucks on me for two tickets to a show and this fancy dinner and some wine, and now, you know, we're at Chili's for our second, you know, our second date. Uh, and don't get me wrong, a nice Chili's margarita is a lovely thing, I love but, but the disparity <laughs> between the two... I wonder if that's not insight into a thought process and into a financial approach that actually may scare some people off that you did too much and then too little. Yeah, that's true. That could be, I guess. Anybody have any experience with that? <laughs> no, uh, no pun intended, but you blew your, blew your wad on the first date. You're done for the month and you can't afford to, to take them out on any more dates until paycheck comes around or something like that. I mean, it could be, yeah, you've, you've set unreasonable expectations that you just can't sustain. Your, your wallet is not going to be able to take them to, you know, north every night for dinner. Um, you know, it's just uh, not going to work. So that leads me to my next question is, is there a motivation to being the one who aside from the obvious, I guess, but to be the one who pays and, um, you know, impresses the other. What, you know, what's the motivation for that? Yeah. What is the real reason? I, you, you come from, from the straight perspective, you think of the historical or the traditional way, you know, it was kind of the man's job, like you said, Justin, right. man, the man steps up and pays. Um, but why would it be that, you know, what would be the motivating force behind the, in, in a same sex relationship? Why would somebody do sex? That? Well, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it's probably the same for, for a straight relationship too nowadays, yeah. but yeah, that's true. I mean, outside the context of like a first date. Okay. So I, I asked this question to somebody that we know that's very, very wealthy one time at lunch. And I said, how do you do this? Because you've got all this money and you're not going to find anybody that's your equal. It's just right. going to be impossible. And so how do you manage that relationship? And um, he said, you know, he was very blunt about it. And he said, look, I enjoy my lifestyle and I want to share my lifestyle and I don't mind paying for somebody else. I don't want to go eat at McDonald's. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to take them to someplace nice and we're always going to go someplace nice. And if they can't afford it, 
then I'm going to pay for it. But he did say that the way that they would divvy up their expenses, which I, don't, I still don't know how they would do it, but that they would do it in proportion to income because they were a couple. And, and for example, let's say they went to Iceland to go stay at the ice palace for a week straight. Um, they would divvy up the cost of that trip based on what the relative incomes would be. That's interesting. Well, yeah, that's a fascinating approach. Yeah, it is, it is fascinating, but I don't know how after a while, maybe the person who was paying more wouldn't feel like they were being slighted and the person who wasn't paying as much would feel like they weren't like meeting their end of the bargain. But uh, it's, it's interesting. We were on uh, Farnoosh. I don't know if you know, you know Farnoosh Tarabi. She's mm -hmm. a, a personal finance expert and blogger. She has a show coming up here in April on CNBC. And we were on her podcast and she was talking about her sister-in-law and her partner who had recently gotten married. And that was kind of their approach to a number of things was one, there was a slight disparity of income and that's what, what one would pay a little bit more than the other. And uh, so it was kind of interesting at, it is an interesting approach, approach of saying you're responsible for what you're responsible for. We want to still have fun. I guess the question, though, would be still is if you're doing something and your 10 percent of the whole lot is still too much money for you, what ends up happening then? You know, if you're only paying 10 percent of a forty thousand dollar vacation and that four thousand dollars is too much for you, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how they work. How they work that out. I mean, hopefully that it's the same, the same risk or the same investment um, yeah, for both true. parties. You know, if it's ten percent, um, ten percent versus ninety percent, whatever it might be. Um, hopefully, it's the same pain to both of them. Yeah. That the one thing that that I would say about that relationship that I also asked him about when we had lunch was uh, the, I guess, the dependence that you can create in a partner by being unequal financially. And uh, that that dependence becomes something that they expect, you know, and then that can put a lot of pressure on a relationship when it's just expected that you will pay. It's expected that, that you're going to do right. all these yeah. things. Right. Yeah. Well, you can talk about. I also think there's things beyond the finance. Um, you know, there's household responsibilities. A lot of times there's children responsibilities. There's other things. So, so the finance is just one aspect of what you need to divide and what you need to approach. And obviously being, you know, that we're on this lab, that, that's the important section. But I, I will tell you that I've been in relationships where the financial difference was, was fairly wide, but my partner did so much around the house and so much, you know, other little things you don't even think about um, that it felt like, I don't want to say they were earning their money because that's, you know, rude and, and it's just not true, but they were doing 80% of, you know, cooking and, and the, the weekly, you know, meals. And so if I'm paying for 80% of our trips, you know, to me that, that evens out. Yes, it's one's money and one's time. But if we're going to go, you know, cliche and say time is money, they're spending much more time, you know, cooking and grocery shopping and all of those things. Uh, and I don't want to put people into gender roles. It just so happened that she was a wonderful cook and, and really enjoyed it. Um, just like me. And, and so, for, <laughs> <laughs> so there was value in that. And, and, and the money became less of a disparity because I, I recognized what she brought to the table elsewhere had value beyond just what the credit card bill was. So is that something that evolved on its own or did you have to kind of discuss that in the beginning to make sure it was equitable in that way? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think it evolved over time. There were times where she would she would complain or or, or feel uh, like she was letting me down because she couldn't cover a bill or or, or we wanted to, I wanted to go to a concert and she said I just I just can't spend seventy five dollars a ticket and I'd say no I want to go let's it's a band I want to see and, and and she would be you know a little upset that I paid for the ticket and and it, we kind of had that that come to Jesus moment of look. I didn't cook last month. I didn't pick up the kids. We don't have kids, but you know, similar like we, we've heard our conversations with. I didn't pick up the kids. I didn't do these things. So, you know, if, if my choice of making money is to spend it on us, so we can have an experience together, that's got to be okay here. We, we've got to figure out a happy medium where we both win. Right. Yeah, that's true. It's all about being together, right? Right. Well, it's a partnership, you know, and and to, I think that. Hopefully more of it is happening today that there's more transparency in those partnerships and those relationships. Um, I think, unfortunately, we come from many of us come from familial backgrounds where there isn't much uh, exposure or much uh, um, 
talk about money or, or finance or how relationship decisions are made. But hopefully as we grow up, we kind of grow into that and we can get into uh, being able to share that kind of thing, those kinds of things with the person that we're intending to or are spending the rest of our life with. We're a good chunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is a good segue, I think, into I mean, we're talking about we're assuming, I think, that both part, partners so far are uh, have, you know, same credit scores and debt limits and, or uh, debt history and all that. Would you what's the thought on dating somebody who was not financially stable if you are um, somebody has a bad credit score or um, has, you know, a mountain of student loan debt. Does anybody have any risks or concerns with, with that? Well, as a divorce lawyer, um, <laughs> <laughs> you probably see a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. If you end up marrying that person, uh, you adopt their financial situation. And while you're not responsible for the debts that, uh, that they incurred prior to that, you know, th there's a question of what their need is during the marriage and those debts are part of their needs. So you, you essentially, become responsible in a way. And if you get divorced from that person and they've still run up all these bills and they're the ones, everybody has this idea that if we just keep separate checking accounts and if we just you know, keep separate credit cards and all that kind of stuff, that it's okay, but it, it really isn't. And so if that person made bad choices before the relationship, ran up debt, didn't pay their bills, whatever it might be, and they kept doing that during the marriage, then you're, the, the other partner is gonna be fully responsible for that. Um, so the debt that they acquired before marriage. So you have all this debt, you get married, you're together, and then you get divorced again. Are you, as the financially stable person, still responsible for the debt they acquired before you got married? No. In divorce, that's not the case, right? Okay. Right. It's it's the debt that they would acquire during the marriage. So, for example, if they if you, if they wanted to go back to school and they borrow a bunch of student loans, guess what? That's okay. marital debt, and so you're going to yeah. be sharing that. Um, but what happens is that if they are economically disadvantaged in the relationship and they owe all of this money and you're paying all of this money, you're never going to get that back. You know, I mean, that that is that becomes just a responsibility. So, you know, it's uh, especially if it's a longer term marriage, you have to worry about what we call maintenance. It used to be called alimony. Um, and there's a formula for that. But one of the biggest factors is what's their need. And if they've got a lot of debt, they've probably got a lot of need. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, I, to me, I think one of the things you have to look at, if somebody's coming in with massive amounts of debt and a bad credit score, what other areas of their life are they irresponsible at? You know, th that's a huge red flag beyond just the financial situation, because I'm concerned that there's other things they're not telling me about or other poor decisions they're going to make. You know, if, if you're telling me, oh, I've got a, a 500 credit score and I've got $30,000 in debt and it's not student loan, it's consumer purchases, yeah. Yeah. To, I, you know, that's a deal breaker for me. I mean, maybe it's harsh, maybe it's not, but A, I don't want to be hamstrung by your inability to do anything. Uh, it certainly would have a problem us getting a house or if you need a car or any, you know, large scale purchases. Right. And then, you know, we're talking before about going on vacations or going away. If you've got a, a oh, as I knocked my mic over, sorry. If, if you've got, you know, five or, or high five figures in debt, I don't know that you're ever going to be able to afford it. So now I've got to cover everything. Right. And, and you know, my, my current girlfriend has spent the last two years really working to improve her credit score, but she came in with minimal debt. You know, when, when our relationship started, it was like $2,000, yeah. which to me is nothing. Right. right? That, that's not ever going to, you know, stop any relationship. But if she had said I have $25,000 in debt, that we're probably not dating today. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. It, it brings up the question, it begs the question of uh, at what point or how soon in a relationship, getting into a relationship, do you try to start uncovering those kinds of uh, at the those realities about somebody you're interested in. One grinder. Yeah, what's your, what's yeah. your credit score? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're not, right. You're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not <laughs> right. Wait, wait, wait a second. I was sorry. I was already censored. Sorry. Do you guys think that happened? You, you, you laugh. You laugh, but that happened. Really? That that you guys laugh, but that happened. Somebody on Grinder was on BuzzFeed a couple years ago where his first picture was my credit score is a 785 or something like that. That was his first picture. Yeah. It was like just advertising it right off the bat. You were gonna ask that question, Dave? What's that? You were gonna ask that question, is that actually what happens? I, I, I was gonna ask, um, is that actually what happens where you, you start some sort of interview and in, uh, interrogation about what their financial situation is? Did you guys have that conversation before you started dating? I mean, no, I just- we 
I, he was just hot across the dance floor. I could see his abs, and I was like, that's what I need. <laughs> I'm serious. That's, that's generally how those relationships start, and you don't have that discussion about um, credit scores and money in the bank. I mean, it's almost taboo to have that discussion, right? It is, and that's, and that's part of the reason why we're maybe – having these kinds of discussions and part of the reason why we're talking about queer money. I mean, queer money, our, our goal with queer money is to try to help build a stronger, a financially strong LGBT community. And one of the reasons or the ways we think that that can be done is by um, peeling back some of the layers on some of these taboo subjects. I mean, my parents didn't really talk to us about credit cards and about de debt and what it was like to create a budget growing up. And, and John said the same thing. And we, looking back on it, we wish we had. Um, now, that being said, I don't know if John would have told me six weeks or 10 weeks <laughs> into our relationship that he had $25,000 in credit card debt and I had... $15,000 in credit card debt that it would have mattered that much, but, but it, it worked out for us. It, it did work you know. out, but it, it does beg the question. I mean, if you do find out that somebody has 40 or $50,000 in credit card debt and you cannot afford to take care of their lifestyle and your own, how do you do, you know, what, what do you do? Or you maybe, maybe, you know, that they are, and I'm just going to pick on this example because you brought it up, Justin. You know, this person is a school teacher. They're a first grade school teacher. And you know that they're probably making $40,000, $45,000 a year. But she happens to be driving a two or one or two year old Mercedes, lives in a condo or an apartment where she's paying, you know, $2,000, $3,000 a month. I, I see examples of people living these kinds of lifestyles. And you just got to wonder. You know, what's going on behind the scenes financially? Can you make some assumptions or should you ask questions? Well, you know, the, the topic of this particular lab is the extended wooing phase. And so if you're really going to date somebody for longer than, you know, a month, uh, at some point, if you, you decide you actually really are starting to like the person, I think finances should be something you should talk about. Mm -hmm. I may not need to know your annual salary or what you're making. But we probably had some conversations about what you're doing at work, you know, how your boss is, when your next promotion may be, you know, those things. And so you kind of tippy toe around it and get a feel for it, um, you know, without coming out and saying it. But but they're also, you know, it, it's different with somebody who's in a job that, that is assumed to make a certain salary. You know, if you are a teacher, if you are a, uh, you know, a, a cable TV installer, you're probably not making 250 grand a year. And, and that's not a slight, that's just what the pay is for that position. Yeah. Whereas, and, and not to, you know, pick on Dave here, but if you're, you know, a successful veteran lawyer, uh, people would be very, very surprised if you said, oh, I make 47 a year. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's I just the reality of this. He would be very surprised. You're not telling me something. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I think you get a feel for it, but you, there is a point in time where you say, okay, well, this, this could be something. And especially with what we've had thrown in our face over the last few years of credit score and credit score and credit score on your finances. And, and, and you know, Carl Richards, who runs BehaviorGap.com, uh, we spoke to him when we met you guys. We were fortunate enough to meet you and him at, at, at FinCon this year. And he, he suggested talking about money early to not make it a taboo subject. Uh, you know, to not make it something that, that has to be hidden and private to say, hey, listen, this is a reality of a situation. Uh, if I was sick, I would tell you. Uh, if I if I have a uh, an ex-wife or an ex-husband, I would tell you. So if we're going to be in this relationship and I've got 20K in debt, I owe it to you to tell you that. Yeah. Well, it, you know, the other thing is, you know, just looking back a couple of weeks, just because somebody appears to be financially successful is a hit rap star and uh, is making millions, bringing in millions and millions of dollars doesn't necessarily mean that they're financially stable. They may have $53 million in debt and need to be bailed out by their Mark Zuckerberg. reality TV <laughs> wife or a bank from Mark Zuckerberg. Right. I mean, how many, how many Hollywood stars do you know that have gone bankrupt and, and you just right. kind of your jaw drops. Um, but the converse is also true. The people who make 40, 50, 60 can be the most stable. Right, um, so yeah, there were eight million dollars. Right, yeah, there was that story last last year, I think it was, or maybe a year and a half ago, of the janitor who passed away, and he gave uh, gave six million dollars to uh, a library. a library and a school, and everybody in the in town thought he was dirt poor. In reality, he he was the rich, one of the richest people in town because he made wise financial decisions. Yeah, yeah I think that 
Well, it's interesting that the St. Louis Rams now will not allow their rookies drafted to sign a contract until they met with a financial advisor. That's good. That's smart. For, for the same reason you're talking with Kanye, is these guys all of a sudden they get their signing. Do you bonus. need to have your CFP fifteen advisor? <laughs> 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 Trust me, if you can get in that game because uh, these guys are are not smart and when about money. I don't want to say they're not smart, but they're just uneducated about money historically. Yeah. A lot of them out of college early or never went to college, yeah. and and when the opportunity arises that they find somebody they trust, they tell all their teammates. It's all the guys they played, you know, amateur ball with and, and college ball with. And so you can pick up 10, 15, 20 clients in a right. hurry. There you go. Well, you know, I, I just have a sense of, I get so angry when I think about the school system and we spend all this time and money trying to get students to earn as much money as they can, but then we don't tell them how to manage that money. And you can earn, as these examples show, millions and millions of dollars and not have anything to show for it at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, it's, it is kind of interesting and it, it, it there's there's so many there's a dichotomy of lifestyle and what people earn and it is interesting that so many people feel the need or are compelled to live up to a lifestyle and I, I'm sure this very much happens in, in the dating world I mean I've been removed from it for a, a little over 12 years now but it, there is this need or you feel compelled to tell people that you are successful nobody well, wants you if you're not considered successful by the world standards. Well, sure. And I mean, in particularly in our community, in the gay and lesbian community, right? We right. are inherently insecure people um, in a lot of ways. And, and you know, as, as chairman of the, the, the Gay and Lesbian Community Center, it was something that we battled all the time in one form or another. And so, you know, our sense of self-worth often comes from our toys not from yes. anything deeper. And so we'll spend every dime we have to get that BMW, the brand new BMW, put ourselves in the hole just so that we can throw off that, that, uh, that impression um, that of security and stability when it doesn't really yeah. exist. So we, um, our, first, our first queer money show is called Overspending to Overcompensate. And that was kind of what we touched on. But I'm curious, since you brought the question up, why do you think that the LGBT community tends to have that inherent sense of insecurity? Well, I think it's because of, you know, wh while we were growing up, we kept this dark secret um, and we didn't want to share it with anybody. And we were always beat, you know, there was always the chatter going on in the world around us about what gay people were and how terrible and all of this kind of stuff. And so we, our, our self-worth just kind of shrank the more with each one of those criticisms and each one of those insults. So um, I think that we are just very insecure and susceptible to that sort of, um, you know, ego crisis that, that can come from maybe just not having enough money to pay for dinner. Right. Well, I wonder in the LGBT community, there's safety, it seems, in bigger cities. Um, you know, if you're, you're from the middle of Nebraska and you're trying to come out, that's got to be brutally tough. Whereas if you're in New York or Chicago or LA or San Francisco, obviously San Francisco, but, you know, bigger cities that are more accepting and you can find pockets of whatever, you know, sexuality or, or race or ethnicity or interest, you can find pockets of your people, if you will. Those places in bigger cities tend to have flashier things to do and, and, and emphasize the flashy and success and the newspapers and all the local blogs are saying, check out this hip place and that cool place. And so not only are you you now in a big city where things are more expensive, but your, your whole, you know, social life and all the people you're with are doing things that are more expensive. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of how the whole um, the whole gay ghettos got started, right? That's how San Francisco got started, right? It was once a ghetto, and all the gays were migrated to that because they could live together in the same way with Chelsea and New York, right? Right. It was the first. It was the it was the physical safety. You felt comfortable, and you could actually feel comfortable walking down the street as a gay couple or as a gay gay man or woman, knowing that you weren't going to get mashed, you know, or yeah, and and. It's interesting, you know, the, one of the articles that we talked about last week about coming out at work, um, it, it's those cities that had a, have attracted people from the center of the country. Those individuals who want to be successful have, attra have been attracted to those uh, coastal cities that have large uh, LGBT populations 
And because of that, those cities have benefited because those individuals have gone there and started companies, yeah. whereas they didn't they didn't feel comfortable starting a company because they didn't feel confident as a gay leader living in a particular city and maybe in the middle of right. Nebraska or Kansas or in a state where they knew that if they were to fight for gay rights, they probably would have their business shut down. Well, that was one of the points I made in my book was that San Francisco in particular drew in this group of gays and lesbians who were very tech savvy because that was how they communicated. That was how they found dates. So the city became inundated with a class of people that was highly skilled at, at technology. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're right that the, the center of the country, the, the, the gay brain trust from the center of the country fled to the coast. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, sorry, I just need to make a comment here. Uh, uh, Poppy Brandle again uh, wrote a comment on the side here about living in the West Village and has always wondered why the real estate in San Francisco and the West Village have been some of the highest in the country. <laughs> it, it, it is kind of interesting because in a lot of the cases, that's not how those those areas started out. They started out as the barrio or as the ghetto and and it was through changes that the gay community made but it's an interesting topic and one actually we're going to cover here in a couple of weeks about whether or not those cities now are the best choices for uh, for gays because mm-hmm. of the fact that they are so financial. There's maybe a financial disadvantage to living in those cities now. Yeah, I'm going but, to San Francisco uh, well, on Thursday. Those, those, aren't just, those aren't just LGBT issues. Those two particular places you picked were, you know, for, for decades have been the most expensive places in the country. Right. Uh, I understand what you're saying, that, they, that, that, that the LGBT community may have gone to a less expensive part early on um and i i don't know whether or not that's true but if, if you're saying it is i have no reason not to believe you but the you know the the, the tide in, in both cities just continued to rise uh and now you're seeing that in miami and la right where you know it's starting to become unaffordable in both of those areas as well and and those are both big you know lgbt communities yeah. so you know, it, it's one of those chicken and egg things. Damn gays, right? they're ruining everything for us. Gentrification. Citywide. I mean, that's San Francisco. It's the second most densely populated city in the country, and it's got the highest rental rates except for New York. I mean, it is it is a, a city that is bursting at the seams. They have 20,000 new people coming in and they every year, and they have zero building permits going in for residential units. Yeah, this is true. Wow. That's, you know, that's got to play into the fact that you have lots of young people living there who are trying to figure out how they can have a social life and how to, how to have an enjoyable life and not spend all of their money on rent and getting to and from work. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's bad out there, that's for sure. Yeah, it's got to be tough. So to get us back in on topic, um, there was this question that came up specifically for Dave, and I know we touched on it already, but a little bit, but maybe you can elaborate. Um, how has social media like Facebook, Twitter, Grindr, Scruff, and whatnot affected the wooing phase, what exactly, uh, what's the biggest impact that that's had on the, the dating scene from start to finish? Okay, so uh, my my belief is that the impact that these, particularly Facebook, let's talk about that because they track all of their data. And if you ever stop to think about the data that they have access to, it's kind of shocking. Um, I mean, they know when you, when you go into a relationship, they know how long you're in that relationship and they know when it's gonna terminate and they know all the averages, they know the ages, all this kind of stuff. But and no one's going to terminate? Huh? No one's going to terminate? Well, they, they know what the average lifespan of a relationship for a 23-year-old is. And so they can kind of project out. And, and this is live data that they collect on the fly. But anyway, so if in, in uh, the traditional, if you will, dating scene, your pool of potential mates was arm's reach. It was either at work, at the bar, at the gym, arm's reach. But and, and it was limited to a small group of people, maybe 50. Facebook, you can have 5,000 people and they're all over the planet. And you can find out um, a lot about them, not just from what they post, you know, the, the, the verbiage, but you can draw conclusions from the pictures, what they choose to post and what kind of pictures, where do they go, what, you know, who are they with? Are they always in a picture alone? Are they always with people? What are they doing with people? So. Um, the, the biggest impact that social media has had is expanding the pool of potential mates well beyond anything we've ever had before and allowing you to touch, right? Touch each one of those potential mates whenever you want to by putting up a new picture, by putting up a, a post and they'll see it. So, so the communication that you have with this large group of people 
enables you to, to really be, to have potential mates like uh, everywhere. <laughs> um, so I, I think that that is the biggest impact that it's had is just the, the sheer number of people that you could uh, you you'd have to choose from. Do you know yet, or does Facebook know yet, um, the success of the relationships that they've helped culminate? Uh, well, I mean, statistically speaking, it, um, I forget the name of the group that does the study, but like I said earlier, that the relationships formed online or through an app are more stable than relationships that are formed in a traditional um, setting. That's interesting. And I mean, that, that is a, you go look it up, but it, it is uh, hands down the truth that, uh, that those relationships, I think that it's because the interview process um, is you're, you're, you can have so much of a more inter, uh, an interview process. You can really dig into that person's history and they don't even really know you're doing it. Right. Yeah, I mean, on Facebook in particular, yeah. What's that? Yeah. I was just on your wall today, checking you out. Facebook are so hard. Uh, and, and I, you know, Dave's numbers are, are not only factually correct, but fascinating, you know, looking into kind of how we date, but, but that doesn't even include, Hey, who's that girl in the picture you just posted or who's that guy in the picture you just posted. And you know, we, um, I mentioned earlier, lesbian attack and they posted a picture of about 30 women. Uh, in, in this group, all in like a group shot. Hey, we're all here. And, and a lesbian friend of mine from New York sent me a note said, Hey, the third one in on our left. <laughs> you know, what's her deal? I want to meet her when I come out. Oh, right. Next month. right. And, awesome. and so you have the situation where I don't know if, I mean, I, I did the introduction. I don't know if they hooked up. I don't know what their deal is, but that wouldn't be a statistic that technically would count. And yet it's because of social apps. And what Dave was saying is, is the pool expanded because every picture is in essence somewhat of a possibility. So, hey guys, sorry, just gonna just gonna take a second here and answer this question. Um, Jacob had just asked if we talk about politics, and just just to let you know, Jacob, we we generally try to steer clear of politics because it beca can become such a spurious subject. Uh, money is tough enough. <laughs> we're gonna someday we'll talk up. about politics. We're gonna broach the money subject God. for now. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then maybe we'll uh, sneak in some politics. Here <laughs> and then we'll never work again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Love so, one watcher. <laughs> um, do you, I guess the question that I have is: Do you think that maybe relationships start out on Grinder or Tinder and then maybe migrate to Facebook? Is Facebook like like? The that, it's a, that's a really good question, and actually, you know, um, there's crossover. When I mean, a Grinder could just be a hookup, and 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 a lot of times it really is just a hookup, right? But if it goes beyond that, yeah, you look them up on Facebook, right? And you see if they yeah. gave you the real name. And then you start doing their homework, <laughs> you know? Their real and, name. Right. <laughs> we all become Dick Tracy. Right? Bottom line, is that your name? <laughs> um, and the other thing, this is, this is really interesting. I don't know if you guys knew this, but when you, like, meet somebody on Grindr and you exchange phone number with them, right? Did you know that Facebook has access to your address book and then will list that person in people you may know? So Facebook actually facilitates you going and looking up the person that you met on Grindr. <laughs> so once you put your their, their phone number in your phone, then they tie the two together. Facebook keeps track of the phone numbers that are in your phone. And that's one of the ways that it gets your uh, who you may know selection. Well, that, that's why you should always use WhatsApp. It just recommended Ellen uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that That's why you use WhatsApp so they can't track you. And, and it's interesting because I, uh, you know, I, I, I we, we uh, best way to put this, but a, a friend of mine recently met a woman, spent the night with her a couple of times and said, I'd like to be Facebook friends with you. And she said, we're not at that stage yet. So they, they can sleep together they, for a weekend. There's all kinds of, I mean, this is, they did nothing but from Friday to Monday, from the report I heard, that was all they did. But the minute she said, oh, let's be Facebook friends. Ah, that's well, personal. that's all about like, taking her personal. mom to your mom right. and dad. That's, that's personal. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like, I'm not going to take you to my mom and dad yet, but I'll have sex with you. Right. Right. You're going introduce, <laughs> to introduce everybody to all your friends because, you know, you met somebody new on your Facebook stream. And, you know, it's interesting because you never know, certainly, what that person is going to do when it comes to Facebook. I know of several individuals who opened up Facebook and found out that they were all of a sudden in a relationship with someone oh, yeah. that they weren't quite certain that they should have been in a relationship. They were the last to find out. They, <laughs> they maybe had gone out on a couple of dates, but now they were happily married. Well, maybe not that much, but you know what I'm getting at is all of a sudden you find out you're in a relationship and 
that it wasn't necessarily a conversation that you've had. Maybe not verbal, but a conversation. <laughs> you got Bogart into it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Or a relationship. So. Well, there, there is a there is a thing that, that you know, if, if it isn't on Facebook, it didn't really happen. And so if you haven't posted it, <laughs> you're not really <laughs> Whenever we go anywhere, I was like, we got to check in. Otherwise, it didn't actually happen. Right. There's no point in doing this. Right. <laughs> our lives are, yes, our lives are being tracked and cataloged in massive data centers in Washington and Oregon. Massive data center. I mean, that's, is that the Nellis guy or is what Tom Cruise movie is that where it's all being captured? Uh, you can predict your date, what you're doing. Oh, uh, not the Nellis guy. Crap. I'm going to forget the name. Minority uh, Report. Minority Report. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, we have another question here on the side here. Um, uh, Sharon asks, uh, um, I don't know if my partner is divulging all of his financial information. Is there a way to find out, I guess, if I ask for tax returns? It's an interesting question. And we actually have a, a blog post. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, if you're in a relationship and have been in a relationship for a significant amount of time, it, it is worthwhile to start asking some of those questions. But one of the best ways to do that is to be forthcoming on your own and, and um, start off by talking about your own finances. Um, but then one of the best ways to really find out what kind of state your partner is in financially is to go together and go online to... Um, uh, freecreditreport.com. I think that's the the website. And just get your credit reports. Just creditreport.com. Or credit. It report. just happens to be free. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's right. Creditreport.com. And you can order those. Uh, um, there's three that are. You get three free annually, and we recommend that you do one one every four months. And it's really hard to hide anything, but with from those reports, so you find out pretty quickly uh, what kind of credits school or credit. Uh, um, credit cards or credit history your partner has. Uh, John and I uh, were just talking about doing that. Uh, was that this morning or maybe it yeah, was yesterday that morning. we need to do that again and just kind of, it's a way to kind of pull back the covers and see what's happening in your relationship financially. And it, and it, you can't really hide anything that way either. Yeah. So, I think now that we don't have it. We do want to give a little, sorry, I was just going to say, I do want to give a little plug uh, that moneytips.com will also be offering free credit reports uh, here in the next uh, couple of weeks nice. uh, as part of a whole suite of, of apps and technologies they're rolling out. Nice. That, Let us know uh, when you do that and we'll add that to the show notes after the fact. Is that moneytips.com? Yep. So um, we're pushing an hour here and I don't want to uh, get too long. Uh, so I guess what's the takeaway from all of this? You know, the, the idea is to try to help people you know, be a little bit more successful financially through the dating phase. Um, I guess the, the one takeaway that I got from it was um, – you know, maybe having the financial discussion a little bit earlier on than you might be comfortable with, but making sure that you have that discussion early on so you know what's fair and equitable to both parties and you're not getting into something a little bit that you can't handle. Um, does anybody have any takeaways they want to share? I, I would just say, you know, do your homework um, to the extent that you can without getting tax returns and credit reports. Um, it's the, the Internet has just a wealth of information about people. Google them. Yeah. And, uh, and and start checking them out that way, particularly Facebook. You know, there's so much information that people put up on Facebook. Um, I, you know, the financial disparity is is a problem in most of our relationships in the gay world, I think. Um, and uh, I, I guess my thought on that is uh, that um, you address it early and you lay out expectations. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up coming and talking to me later. Right. <laughs> which is good for you but not for them yeah. right. it's not good yeah it is sad that money is is the number one reason for relationships is that uh, would you say, actually that's a good question Dave is that the same um, in I guess you know, gays have only been getting married for not even a year now year yet um, is that the same reason why gays are getting divorced too is primarily because of money problems yeah. I mean and people are people and, and, and most of most of the problems come from money um, yeah. and the, the mismatched expectations of, of how much can you spend and how much do you make and how do I got to pay for that I mean right. I, we get most of our phone calls right for divorces in January when the credit card statements come due from Christmas Wow um, yeah. nobody wants to pay all these bills um, that's when our phones go go nuts um, and wow. yeah, so I mean, it, finance is a big driver in uh, in divorce. Um, just it's it's, yeah, that's it's why unfortunate we're here. That, that that's the way it is. Yeah, Justin, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I, and that's a fascinating. The, the, what Dave just pointed out about January is really <laughs> eye opening. 
I would say trust your gut uh, and ask about money early and be communicative. But if somebody is very cagey, if if they are, you know, all of a sudden, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want, you know, it, it's different with saying, hey, I don't know. Finances are uncomfortable for me this early in a relationship versus I don't want to talk about it, you know, or, or, or that's none of your business. If somebody's very defensive about money, there's generally a reason. And it's not just, hey, that's personal for me. It's not something I want to talk about this early in. Uh, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't bring it up on a first date or probably even a second. By the time you think you're, you know, third, fourth, fifth, and you, you this may turn into a relationship, I'd at least like to know, you know, are, are we on the same page? Because if we are going to do this, and I, I could be wrong. I know we're talking about an extended wooing phase, and my wooing phase was 12 years. So I'm, you know, really extended. Um, <laughs> How much does that cost? <laughs> yeah, that's expensive. <laughs> I was I was very fortunate that my my work at the time was flying me into her city every other yes. weekend. So uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise, I, I'd be talking to Dave about my debt load. <laughs> uh, but I think if you you know you trust what you see um, and and believe that that if somebody's willing to talk to you about finances, they're going to be willing to talk about other things, and that's how relationships work. And if they're cagey and hiding things, then that's just the tip of what they're going to be cagey and hiding about, and that's not going to be a, a healthy relationship for you. Right. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add uh, one of the things that we didn't really talk that much about was how to how to woo at a an economical in an economical way. And it's interesting. I, I'm a part of several uh, large Facebook groups, LGBT, LGBT Facebook groups. Wow, that's hard to say. Um, and uh, you know, we're talking over 40,000 members. And I did kind of an unscientific study and I asked individuals, what what would you think if you were out on a date and the person you were with? who you thought was very, uh, very well off or, or very successful financially. Um, and you were having, you were on the date, uh, a dinner date, and they said that they were going to pay for dinner. And then after that, they whipped out a, a coupon or a Groupon or something like that. And I was surprised that more than 80% of people either said it didn't matter to them, or even more than 60% of people said that they were impressed that this, it was most likely the way this person got to where they were financially. And so we, we may think, and like you, like you said, Dave, we, we, we live in a community that is, we, we have to impress or, or pull off that we are financially successful. Well, there are people out there who part of the way you could impress them is by right. actually being, being a little bit economical about your money because maybe saving 20% on a, on a dinner here and there is what's going to be able to, allow you to take them with you when you go to Iceland and stay in the ice castle or, <laughs> or PV and in, uh, in uh, the beach, go to the beach in Puerto Vallarta or something like that. Twice in one month, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that. It, it was a stressful month. <laughs> well, you know, my, my girlfriend says, uh, she's a, a saying, she says, saving is sexy. And I think that that kind of plays into that. You know, if I'm going to get the same meal and I can get it for $25 as opposed to $35, why would I pay $35? That's, that's my $10. Why am I giving it away to somebody else if they're willing to give me the exact same experience for $10 less? And if you do that all the time, suddenly you're looking at, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars $800 at the end of the year. You know, is it a ton of money in the grand scheme of things? No, but it's a really nice weekend away. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and it allows you to reconnect. I, I also think if you live in a, a, any one of the top 100 size cities in this country and you can't find a free or inexpensive fun thing to do, you're not looking. Yeah, right. Because so every weekend, every night is some sort of show or event or opening or or where people are just trying to generate buzz and they're going to let you in for free. They're going to let you in at a, a huge discount. You know, if I, if I can see the Anaheim Angels and I'm a baseball fan, they put tickets on Gold Star. The same seats other people are paying $45 for, I paid $16 for. Well, it comes back to, again, why am I paying Mike, Trout's, Mike Trout's salary if the Angels aren't requiring me to do so? <laughs> That's true. Half those words, I don't even understand what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> There's a ball and a bat and a stick. You're halfway home. Oh, he gets baseball. <laughs> so, um, David and I want to thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, if you haven't been to Money Tips, Please check out what Justin and Michael are doing over at Money Tips. They do a lot of great work. Um, they actually have a very great video of two guys named Jeffrey Guys over yeah. there. Um, and then also we want to thank Dave Johnson for being on our show. Um, please check out his book on Amazon. It's called Looking, Technologies, Impact on Modern Relationships. 
Alrighty, so it seems like the world of dating is ever-changing, but the expenses don't need to crush your love life. So what were those three things that we talked about to help you keep the cost of dating down? Well, the first one was start small. Remember that coffee or a beer is a low-cost entry point. Dropping $150 on dinner can wait till later. Number two, go Dutch. After the first few dates, when the costs start going up, suggest that you go Dutch before you head out to your destination. Number three, don't be scared to suggest a free activity or use a coupon. Groupon has been our dining out friend and has helped us cut costs by anywhere from 20 to 50%. Remember that part of our money mantra here is to have fun. We believe it's possible to do so while living debt-free. For great tools to help you live debt-free, remember to check out our site, debtfreeguys.com. We've added a bunch of new tools there. Go check them out. Thanks again, and have a great day. Okay. We just serviced you, now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.